0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Call to Mastery. I'm Jordan Rayner. This is a podcast for Christians who want to do exceptional work for the glory of God and the good of others. Every week, I bring you a conversation with a Christian who's pursuing world-class mastery of their craft. We talk about their path to mastery, their daily habits, and how their faith influences their work. Today's guest is my friend John Acuff. He's the New York Times best-selling author. Finish, start, do over, and one of my all-time favorites stuff Christians like. He's a great writer, maybe an even more exceptional speaker on stage. He was named one of Inc. Magazine's top 100 leadership speakers on Earth. Guys, I promise this is going to be the funniest episode of the Call to Master we've ever produced. We talked about everything from Yanni to Chris Pratt. We talked about the three questions that John asks of every soundtrack that enters his brain. All of this comes directly from his new terrific book, Soundtracks. And then we talked about what we're teaching our kids implicitly and explicitly about work and how that's going to shape their excitement and their ambition to do great work in the future. You guys are going to love this terrific episode with my friend, John Cuff. John, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me today. So do you know what I was listening to as I prepped for this conversation? Johnny,
1: live at the Acropolis.
0: Live at the Acropolis? Yeah. Because, quote, bold statement in your book, the best album of all time. Are you going to stand by that?
1: not close for a second i mean i'm somebody i'm sure is gonna say like born to run or like i don't know joshua tree that's great but yeah if you haven't heard that i don't know what you're doing with your life or your ears i hadn't heard it
0: since my parents like cassette player in our toyota previa
1: growing up they sound awesome by the way if they had that album yeah you no know, like
0: 100% 100% they do. You
1: probably are not in therapy because they probably made a no, lot no, of no, good no, decisions. No, 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 I'm not. I'm
0: not because of Yanni. It was terrific. And I loved the little fleeting story you mentioned in the book about this album and what it says
1: about Risk. Can you share that? Dude, it was my favorite thing to write because I've been dying. <laughs> like, this is my seventh book because I'm very accomplished. Of course, and of course. I have been waiting to talk about that for so long and I finally had something where it fit. It's A hilarious story the way it's told, but the reality is like he put on a concert in the Acropolis. And so the joke I did was like, your HOA won't let you change your mailbox. Imagine trying to like do a concert in a temple from the Stone Age or the Bronze Age. What I read about it was it cost two million dollars to put on and he did the money himself and at the time his net worth was two million and fifty thousand dollars. So like (laughs) I love it. You do the math. So yeah, I just I joke about it, but I did write, like, I've written so much to that album. You know, I write to, like, moody, ambient, no lyric kind of stuff. Yeah, so too, that album, too. and then occasionally he'll just riff in the middle with some positive statements. So, yeah, I just, that he pulled it off and that it catapulted him to, like, new stratospheres, I absolutely, yeah, if you said, to like, one concert you could go to, like, that would have been amazing. To be, I probably would still be wearing the T-shirt. The
0: best concert I've ever been to. Kind of similar. I'm not as cool as the Acropolis. And it was by happenstance. I was in Rome with some friends walking down the street. I'm a huge Billy Joel fan. And we pass a poster. And all I can read is Billy Joel, Brian Adams. The rest of it is in Italian. And some angel of an Italian walked by. He was like, do you want me to translate that for you? We we're like, yeah. He's like, oh, Billy Joel and Brian Adams were playing a free concert at the Coliseum tomorrow night. That's amazing. It was unbelievable. 500,000 Italians. Singing Piano Man in English. I'm weeping wow. like a teenage girl.
1: That's unbelievable. Yeah, that's that's, right. that's hard to beat. That really that is. They have a really life with their
0: problems can do it. So, John, I've been a fan of yours since, man, how long ago did you publish Stuff Christians
1: Like? That was the first thing. 2010 I was the one <sighs> that book came out. So, We're yeah, 11 years know. ago.
0: I know, right? Was that book before or after you decided, I'm going to be a full-time speaker author? Oh, that was way before,
1: you know, I got paid $30,000 for that book. So like, which again, awesome. Like I never yeah, wanted yeah, yeah, to sure. diminish that. That's amazing that anybody pays me anything for my writing is I feel thrilled about, but you know, take home was like 13,000. And so sure. like, no, there was no part of me. I was like, I've made it. I'm now <laughs> going to be full time. Like, no. And at the time I'd spoken a handful of times, but no, it was, It really wasn't until going on eight years now that I started my own company. So that was where I was really like, okay, you know what? I'm going to do this. Like this is, I feel like I've got the pieces in place. I feel like I can do this. I'd spent three years kind of learning from Dave Ramsey on how he did things. And so I felt like I had a pretty good foundation, but I would say it's been the last eight years that I've really said, this is it.
0: You and I are both doing this work, creating content full-time now. And I know it's a dream for a lot of people listening, right? But it took us both a long time to get there. It took you, what, six years to become a full-time speaker? Is that right?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, like, it's hard to even say, like, to get there. Like, yeah. I, you yeah, know, right, like, because, right. like, in 2020, when everybody was like, all live events are canceled, you have to find another there. And you have to kind of figure out something. Okay, what am I going to do as I kind of stuff opens up? I'm going to do virtual events. So, yeah, I mean, it's taken me a long time. Whenever somebody's like, I want to do exactly what you do. I don't tell them usually how long it would take because I don't know what if it would have encouraged me to know that. In 2008, when I got my first speaking gig, if somebody had said it'll take you 13 years to get to this place, like I don't know that I would have found that encouraging. Usually, when somebody tells me, so I remember I did a book signing with John Maxwell, which in hindsight was a mistake. Not because because he's an awesome person. It's just like if you want to be invisible, do a book signing next to John Maxwell. I could have been on fire and no one would have <laughs> put me out with one of his books. And so it's just like a hundred people in line. He's got so many people. They've got like wheelbarrows of John Maxwell books. And then like, nobody's in my line. And they're, they'd step out briefly because they don't lose their spot and be like, I love your blog. Like not enough to buy one of your products, but I love you. And this dude patted me on the back that Keep I didn't know. Keep publishing
0: that stuff for free. Keep it yeah, up. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. Somebody patted me on the back that I didn't know and said, 10 years, buddy, 10 years. And it, that wasn't super encouraging. So yeah, it has taken a while. That's for sure. And I'm still working on it.
0: Of course, we're also working on
1: it. How did you make
0: the leap though? Like talk through the technicalities that were you saving money from a full-time job or freelance oh, yeah, work? Dude, I
1: was doing side hustle like crazy. I was getting up at 5am. I was writing my blog. I was, you know, I had freelance clients. No, like, for me, it was like once I discovered the faucet that is side hustle, I was like, why would I ever not have this faucet to some degree? Like if I could teach my kids like, hey, always have a good side hustle, that would be one of the lessons that I would want them to leave the house with. I was writing jingles for like tire companies. So like it's hard to rhyme radial in a barbershop quartet jingle, <laughs> but I figured it out. I did uh, laser hair removal ads, like tons of those. So like, which I know a ton about, obviously.
0: Wow! Right, right. And so
1: I'm doing all this side hustle. I'm a copywriter. So yeah. And then I'm going, okay, well, where's our financial runway? Like I'm a big believer that a lot of people, like they cripple their dreams because they saddle every bill with it right out of the gate. And so you force your dream to be a home run before it's had time to even learn how to walk. And so, yeah, I was doing a bunch of stuff on the side as I kind of prepared and kind of, you know, tested the waters. But somebody told me, you'll never get the boat right up against the pier. There's always going to be some degree of jump. Part of it
0: for me, so I was running this fairly well-funded tech startup before I made the leap to go writing full-time. I don't think you can fully see what the next thing is until you make the leap, right? Like it's not just like financial runway, but at some point you just got to take a leap of faith back. I'm going to kind of figure this out.
1: Yeah. And your message is going to crystallize as you share it. Like that's the other thing. You don't have this fully formulated Like, I can't stand, and if I don't think you say this, but, like, I can't stand when people go, figure out your niche first. Like, I don't think that's true, like, because it puts this incredible pressure to be like, I only talk about hair products for, like, redheaded uncles, and that's my Instagram platform, like. It's taken me years to realize, you know what I care about? I care about helping people finish their goals. And sometimes that looks like career goals. And I read a book called Do Sometimes it's about finishing the last part of a goal. It's called Finish. Sometimes it's about how overthinking gets in the way of that. And it's called Soundtracks. But I didn't start out to go, that's what I care about. I did a bunch of things. and was like, oh, wow, I see a through line here. I see a pattern. Like, okay, why don't I own that? Yeah, you just place a bunch of
0: little bets. And you see what works, right? And what's bearing fruit. You talked about this a minute ago. I want to go back to it. You love speaking. You love being on stage. That's where you eat. You built this whole business around speaking to live events. Pandemic happened. What was 2020 like for you?
1: One of the most important questions I think you can ask yourself during a 2020 or during a change is, what would have made this easier? And then you go build that thing. So what would have made this season easier? And you don't shame yourself for not having it, but you go, okay, what would have made it easier? And you build it. So I asked myself that question in March and I realized, you know what? Having a YouTube channel would have made things easier because I would have had an extra revenue stream. I would have been, have a studio figure out. I would have been better on camera. Okay. Let me go do that. Having a podcast would have made things easier. So I launched, you know, all it takes is a gold podcast. And so I really started to build some other stuff knowing Public speaking live events are coming back. I have a live event like in two weeks from now, like I can't wait i'd be on a plane tomorrow if somebody had a live <laughs> event like I am and then I learned how to do virtual, so I partnered with my speakers' bureau we we have a studio, we have a full time person that producer on our side, so I really learned how to do virtual events, so yeah, I just had to it was roll up the sleeves time you know and go okay, what are some, like the other thing I like to say is like, what's the thing you told yourself someday I'll do? Cause guess what? Today is someday. Yeah. Like we're all in the middle of
0: speak. Right. Exactly. I loved in soundtracks, how you explained the difference between reacting to problems and responding to problems, explain the difference for our audience. And how did that
1: play out for you last year? I mean, reacting like, and I did react. There were definitely like at least six to eight weeks of just grumpy frustration. Like man, it'll be done by the spring, man, it'll be done by the summer. But responding is when you start to build. I think reacting has a degree of panic associated with it. And, and responding has a, okay, I'm going to have to plan. I'm going to have to do some things. I'm going to have to let go of some entitlement. I think when you respond, you let go of entitlement. Like When you react, there's also sometimes a, a thought of like, oh, I shouldn't have to do this. This is like, I used to be so much easier before and respond. I go, okay, Like here's where we are. Let's figure it out. Let's plan. Let's figure out how to have some peace around this. Let's do the best we can. It's much more thoughtful. It's much more deliberate. It's honest about the challenges. That was one of the things Tom Ziegler in the book, when we talked about his dad, Zig Ziegler, talked about like, you don't ignore the honesty of the problem. If you pretend there's not a problem, you don't get to fix it. And so you admit that there's a problem. Like, there was no degree of hustle or like good attitude that would make people schedule live events. Like there was nothing I could do that would go, Oh, don't worry. Don't cancel that 600 person event. I'll, I've got a positive attitude, like what I can do. So here's the difference. I can be really furious about that. Or I can go, you know what? I bet that if I did a bunch of zoom pop-ins for free to clients that have been amazing to me, like, that would encourage them. It might turn into some other business, but it would definitely encourage them. And it'd give me a chance to do 15 minutes on Zoom as a practice. It's all win. So let me respond that way.
0: Is that what you did? You reached yeah. out to your best oh. clients like, hey, can I like, hop in for 15 yeah, minutes? Yeah. Can I
1: hop in for 15 minutes and encourage the team? And they'd be like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Let's do it. And then I'd get to super serve them. And it didn't all the time turn into something, but a lot of times it turned into, hey, you know what? We're thinking about doing a digital summit that idea you shared with 15 of us, would you share it with 1,500 of us? And I was yeah, like, yeah. I, was, yeah, I totally would do yeah. that. Let's do it. Serve, 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 serve. Yeah. That's the hard thing is like, it's not complicated, dude. No, it's no, no. really not, but it's It's hard. not complicated, but it's hard. Right, exactly. You got to put your ego aside. You got to do so much grunt work. You got to beat that voice in your head that's like, you should be doing something more important right now. Like, this is just block and tackle. And like, nah, dude, block and tackle matters
0: it totally matters. It's funny we're having this conversation today. I spent most of my day today interacting with 200 people who joined my launch team. We just did a new round of recruitment for my launch team. We have a perennial launch team for my books. We don't we don't recreate it with every book. And I sent individual messages to all those people, right? Like it doesn't scale, but it matters, right? It's not
1: glorious and I'm exhausted, but that's what it takes, right? I mean, I think that's the challenge. And we don't talk about those things, I think, because we live in such a scale it. It's funny. I, I had a friend the other day who was like, man, that guy makes $80,000 a month on his like Facebook, whatever. And I was like, well, how many hours a month does he work on it? He's like, I don't know. And I was like, that's the problem. You know the 80,000, you don't know that like maybe he spends 40 hours a week on it and it's very difficult. And maybe he spent 10 years to get the 80,000. But we tell these stories, even though we know like people say all the time, there's no overnight success. There's no get rich quick scheme. We still believe there could be. And we, you know, so we need moments where Jordan Rainer says, Hey, yeah, I spent, you know, all afternoon texting people, encouraging phrases It's Warren Buffett, right? Like nobody wants to get rich slow. That's the problem.
0: No, no. It's not rich, it's impact, but you get what I mean. Yeah, totally. I learned something new about you in this book. You mentioned that you've tried to model your career after Seth Godin. I thought
1: that was interesting. Why Seth? He's really deliberate about scale. He could do 500 speaking events a year, easy. And he's really deliberate about going, no, this is the amount I do. This is the work I do. I'm consistent with what I write. He could run a 200-person team, but I spent two days in his office. He did this Future of Publishing mastermind, and I applied and got to go do it, and it was awesome. And so I got to see his team. It's not a massive team. It's a deliberately-sized team. So I just really respect that because I can sometimes get distracted by the monster of more and go, I need to have this, I need to have this, I need to have this. And I've just always really respected his attention to craft, his attention to consistency, and his attention to scale.
0: I really respect people who make the deliberate choice to keep teams small because I do think there's this culture of just addiction to growth of revenue, addiction to growth of teams. You and I've exchanged emails about this before. You've been like, yeah, I'm trying to keep my team small, right? Like being a yeah, few Yeah,
1: I mean like I've come to the point where Kerry Newhoff, I'm sure he's a mutual friend yeah, of Yeah, I ours. love Kerry, yeah said that his thing is like, let God determine the size. And so I'm trying to live out of that because like I sometimes play it small out of fear. So I'm trying to find the spot where it's faith-based, but it's still not like numbers for numbers sake, but that it's you know like, okay, like I'm gonna, I always go back to the, the story of the talents. The guy who got the five talents didn't go, I can't believe the other dude got 10. I'm gonna obsess about that. He crushed the five. Like he immediately put it to work. So like, whether I get five or 10, and there's been so many things where I'm like, I can't believe I get to do this job. Like, it's amazing. I want to be faithful to that. So I'm actually at a time where I am adding people, opening my company to other voices and and really kind of sharing what I do so that I can reach more people. But I want to do it in a way where it's not just because I'm like, I need to have 100 staff members. I would suck at 100 staff members. So what? like, I don't need to do that.
0: You were really kind to endorse my last book, Master of One. And in that book, I talk about these three keys to mastering anything vocationally, right? Number one's apprenticeships, either direct or indirect. Number two's purposeful practice, just putting in the work. And then number three is like discipline over time, like commitment, faithfulness to something for a long period of time. Which of those three keys have you found to be most critical for you personally?
1: I think the discipline over time, and it's the hardest one for me. I've had the good fortune of being around great leaders. You know, I talk about Brad Lominick, I don't know, 13, 14 years ago, like when I had stuff Christian's like, and it was just kind of starting to grow. He would let me take him out to like Chili's and ask him questions. I had no money. And I was like, can I take you out to dinner and ask you questions? I'd be like, wow, I balled out tonight at Chili's with Brad. (laughs) And so like, I've had the benefit of that. I used to work closely with Dan Cathy from Chick-fil-A. So I got to see how a billionaire interacts with people and how you serve people. I certainly learned a ton working for Dave Ramsey and Reggie Joyner and, you know, all these different leaders. So that one, I think I've been really fortunate with, I would say the discipline over time is the one that I think is really valuable and also really challenging.
0: Yeah. I think it's challenging for anybody. By the way, Brad's the best.
1: Yeah, he's awesome. I did his podcast the other day. It's so fun. And he's helping with my podcast. He helps with sponsors with my podcast. So that's a working relationship that I still feel really grateful to have.
0: It's one of my favorite episodes of this podcast is Brad's, which we released a while back. I think another key to mastering whatever you do vocationally is, is kind of what you're talking about in this newest book, Soundtracks. It's the ability to, as the Apostle Paul said, take thoughts, Captive to distinguish between bad mental soundtracks, as you call them, and the good ones. And I really liked the three questions that you encourage readers to ask of every
1: soundtrack. Can you share those with us? Sure. The first question is Is it true? Is this thing that I'm hearing true? You know, that can be simple. If you're a 15 year old and you, you know, tell yourself, if I get a bad grade, I'll never get into college. Like as a freshman, if I get a bad grade on this thing, I'll never get in college. Is that true? That's not true. The second question is, is it helpful? Is it helpful? Does it move you forward? So you might hear a soundtrack that says doing a podcast is hard. That might be true. Is it helpful though? Does it pause you or push you forward? Does it stop you or encourage you? And then the third question is, is it kind? Is it kind to yourself to play that on repeat? And there's so many studies about the importance of kind repetitive thoughts and what they do for you, so those to me, if you can ask those questions, you can weed out a lot of broken soundtracks, and you can also have a litmus test for okay that you know this soundtrack is good and helpful. I'm going to deliberately work on that. I always tell people like fear comes free, faith takes work. You don't have to say today I'm going to deliberately think of some negative things, like you didn't have to tell yourself. I hope today at the grocery store, I remember a stupid thing I said in a meeting three years ago. Like that's going to happen. The positive side of thing is where it takes work. It takes being deliberate. It takes being repetitive. And that's a challenge.
0: Another key to mastery is just seeking it. We talk a lot about it on this podcast, seeking out critical and constructive feedback, like proactively seeking it out. And you talked about, I highlighted this and showed it to my wife. I'm like, oh, this is me. You talk about going to your wife with like a new chapter of a book it'd be like, hey, read this. It should be like, okay, cool. Do you want feedback or do you want compliments? And that's because most of the time I just want compliments. So how have you developed the skill or how are you developing the skill of like genuinely seeking out feedback rather than stroking your ego?
1: Well, part of it's being honest, like with yourself. So knowing, okay, I don't want feedback on this thing. Like I got this thing. I know this. I'm not like, So part of it's being honest. Part of it is going, like, I've heard so many people say this. So this isn't my original idea. I've heard Brian Cobbleman say it, where you give it at least 24 hours before you share it. When I write something fresh, like, I'm not ready for feedback. So I need to let it sit. I need to, you know, think about it a little more before I even send it out into the world or I'll be discouraged. So sometimes it's giving it time. The other is, I think, reminding yourself of the other person's motive. So that's a soundtrack. So like, if I know I need feedback, I might, and I've done this uh, so many times before, I'll write on a post-it note, you know, this person's goal is that I create an amazing book. Their goal isn't they ruin my day. Their goal isn't they make me find new words and I'm all out of words because those are the best words I had. Like, that's not their goal. Their goal is that this book is amazing. And if I can remind myself of that, it makes it easier to take the feedback. And then also, I think whenever it comes to feedback, you have to be willing to give on things and you have to be willing to fight for things. So there has to be sections where you go, you're right. You know what? I'll give on that. Totally. There's other things you have to go, no, I like that is the thing and I care about that and here's why. And if you'll explain why, 90% of the time, the person goes, oh yeah, well... I didn't know that, or you didn't explain it. You just said, I mean, Anne Lamont talks about that in Bird by Bird, where she had a book that some editor was like, this is terrible. Tell me about the book. And she's like marched in front of him for two hours, laid out the whole book. And he was like, amazing, do that. Like, you haven't done that yet, do that. And then the other thing is like, if I'm working with my editor, Brian Voss at Baker, and he gives me feedback, amazing, because he's an expert. Like, there's experts that like, it behooves me to listen to, And I need to take that and I need to receive that. I need to ask those experts. But there's also people that if I don't respect their opinion, I shouldn't ask them for their opinion because it's just going to make the relationship awkward because I'm going to be like, no, I'm not doing that.
0: Well, yeah, it's not a good use of their time. It's disrespectful to them to even ask in the first place, right?
1: Yeah. So if I do something like that, I'm looking for them to give me compliments or to think I'm like, wow, how vulnerable he is to get feedback. And if I know I'm not going to listen to the feedback, I shouldn't waste either of our time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I uh, I haven't showed this on the podcast yet. I sent in my next book with oh, congrats! A couple, a couple of months ago. Thanks. And it was my first time working with this new editor who's phenomenal. Her name is Becky Nesbitt there in Nashville, where you are. And I had to call Becky and she gave me these phenomenal notes. And I like wasn't in a place to receive them. And I responded really poorly. I talk about this all the I had to call her back later that afternoon. I'm like, hey, I'm sorry. You're world class at what you do. I'm sorry. I want to try that again.
1: Oh yeah, I had to apologize to my literary agent. Yeah,
0: it's like they want this to be a great book. Writing down their intent is a great. So you did this with your literary agent?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I had to say to him during the proposal process, like I had to apologize multiple times because he would give me feedback, and I'd be like, "You're wrong." Like I wouldn't scream, (laughs) "You're wrong," but like my attitude definitely said, like I was like a twelve-year-old, you know, who was like. I don't want to wear a coat. You're trying to ruin my life by making me wear a coat. So yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I think there. Yeah, like you can do it as perfectly as you want. But I remember there was a book called Death by Suburb that I loved, and my favorite thing in that is he said he prayed that God would take away his anger, and all God did was teach him how to be better at apologizing, and that wasn't the solution he wanted. And I was like, that's that is legit. And so yeah, there are moments where like you'll do your best, and you'll still go, wow, I get a, I get to practice apologizing because I need to apologize. That's part of it. You mentioned Maxwell.
0: I've heard I've never seen him in action, but I've heard he is constantly writing down ideas. It seems like you do the same thing. I was kind of picking this up as I was reading the latest book. You write down a lot of ideas, a lot of quotes, even if you're not sure how you're going to use them. So as a writer, I'm curious, like, How do you retroactively make creative connections between those ideas or assign relevancy to them? Are
1: you reviewing them once a quarter? How does that work for you? Dude, I wish like, I always love questions like that. And I I love when I hear other authors talk about it, like David Sedaris does like diaries and he does like, it sounds amazing. I wish I was like that. I mean, I'm looking at a wall of ideas. I have a huge post-it note that kind of like, they're massive. And I've got a bunch of ideas on there. And I don't know if I'll use them a lot. I see one up there that says fear gets a voice, not a vote. And I've already used that in a speech because I was like, that's a good, like, the reality is fear does get a voice. People who are like, you could be fearless. I don't believe that. Because like every time you do something slightly bigger than the last thing, there's new fear. And if you tell yourself, no, I'm now fearless, you fail constantly. And so I like the idea of it gets a voice but not a vote. Like it doesn't get to vote on, yeah, we shouldn't do that. Like cuz I don't want to make decisions based on fear. And so I have a notebook. A lot of times I keep them there. I've tried so many different systems, but I have a notebook and I like my new attitude is I was thinking about this the other day and I haven't written it down yet. I mean, I've written it down as an idea I haven't shared it with the public it is like I was walking down the street in Tybee Island, Georgia, off the coast of Savannah. And there are all these acorns everywhere, like thousands of thousands of acorns. And there was one big tree. And I thought, that's like ideas. Like, I wonder, I think sometimes we're wrong thinking every idea will turn into something. And sometimes it's just like a million acorns and there's one amazing tree. And so I try to capture as many as I can. And some of them turn into something. Some of them are just, they were for that moment. And when I read them again, like a week later, I'm like, that is crazy town. What does that even mean? But I know if I don't collect them, then I'll never, you know, and the review is the hardest part to go back to them and say, okay, this has a home. Okay, this is like, I'm looking at my journal right now. Number 70, because I number them. And when I use them, I'll cross them out. So number 64 was a tweet about that I owe Funyuns an apology because they're delicious. I decided in like the third grade, they're terrible. And I had like a 30 year absence of our relationship. And then I tried them the other day, half, like randomly, and I was like, this is fantastic. And so like, like, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to put that in a book, but like, I'll put that on Twitter. But then like idea number 70 is my rep secret is 50. So like I was talking to a campus pastor who was like, man, I've got this new position where I need to speak and do the announcements every Sunday. Like, how do I do that? And I was like, well, here's what you do. It's five minutes. You practice it three times completely before the time you do it on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And I said, if you do it 52 times a year, you only have 52 practices. If you do it three times per, you get four years of experience in one year. So like that's how I look at things. And so I wrote down, all I wrote down was number 70, my rep secret, 52 weeks of Sundays, or you do it three times, which gives you four years in a row, four years of experience in a one-year window. Ah, okay. I might use that in a speech. I might use that on a podcast. I don't know where I'll use it, but I thought it was valuable enough. And so maybe I'll develop it.
0: Yeah, I love it. What does your day look like From the moment you get out of bed to the moment you go back to bed, what's the TikTok of your day?
1: Well, it's different. It's different on the season. I'm in a book launch season. So there's, you know, I try to not do podcasts when I'm not launching something just because like- By the way, I stole that idea from you. Which idea?
0: I asked you to be on the podcast, I don't know, six months ago. And you're like, hey, yes, when my next book is out. And so we've started doing that. I got a book coming out in October. I stole
1: that from every musician and every movie star. (laughs) Like Tom Hanks- in a normal year isn't just like, yeah, let's go I'll go to New York and just talk to Stephen Colbert for an hour Robert, for no right. reason. Like you he's like it. Yeah, Stephen Colbert's like, what do you have coming out? Oh, I'm so excited. I got, you know, big is coming out, whatever. And so like today, every day is different, but I try to start the mornings fairly similarly where I get up at like five forty five, I make coffee, I help my kids get out the door for school. They're teenagers, so there's not a ton there, but I gotta make sure they're up and you know that they're having breakfast and they're they've got their stuff. And then I going through the gospels this year. Annie Downs did that. And I thought that was a cool idea. Like, so just all four gospels. So I do like a gospel chapter of the gospels or two. I'll read a couple pages of a book that I'm reading with a friend. If I'm doing like a water goal, I'll try to drink some water. And then I'll try to, I try to write 30 to 60 minutes every day on a future project, not an urgent project. So I'm working on the new book. So I'll write on that. And then I try to do Monday through Wednesday without many meetings. And then Thursday and Friday are a bunch of meetings. And so I find it hard to get back into a writing flow if I have a meeting that kinda is in the middle of things. So I can't like if I have a Monday morning meeting at like ten thirty, it's hard for me before or after to get into the flow. So I'd rather leave that time open. But then like today I did some podcasts, did you know, went to lunch with a friend, went on a walk with my wife, worked on Pre-sale stuff that I'm trying to get ready. I've got two virtual events tomorrow, so that'll be the shape of that day. So yeah, it really depends. I wish I had a formula, and I think that we often think people do, but I just don't know. Like life is is way too messy and too fun for that. I want to own the things I can own, but like I always kind of I like Laird Hamilton. He's just like the Michael Jordan of surfing. Him and Kelly Slater. And Laird, I remember, it's funny the things you remember. In an article for Outside Magazine, he was talking about his diet. He's like, yeah, I'm really consistent. Like he has his own company, uh, Laird Superfood. But he was like, if I have to eat something because I'm traveling, I don't make a big deal about it. He's like, I eat a cheeseburger at McDonald's because that's what I had an option for that day. Like it's not, he's like, that's going to be my thing that day. And I liked that versus I can go from really not being careful to really perfectionistic and I'm trying to land in the middle. I will
0: shift gears for a minute and talk about how your faith influences your work. Your dad was a pastor. You obviously have considerable skills as a public speaker. Did you ever think you might be a
1: pastor yourself? No, I never really thought that. I think a lot of pastors' kids do. It's just natural. I think a lot of times, like J.J. Abrams' parents worked in Hollywood. At like 14, he was interning for Steven Spielberg. So I think it's very natural for you to say, oh, my dad's a plumber, my mom's a dental hygienist, whatever the thing is. But I never really felt that, you know, I didn't even feel like I was going to be uh, communicated from stage. I just knew I really liked sharing ideas and wanted to see how that would kind of shake out. But
0: you've always had a thing with words. You started your writing career really writing for the church. I mean, stuff Christians like the blog, the book was obviously aimed at the church. But I love that you made this pivot to this broader market. Can you talk about your thought process there about starting with that smaller market of just Christians and expanding more broadly?
1: Yeah, well, I didn't. I mean, like, stuff Christians like was just a whim. So I had like 50 other terrible ideas. I thought I'd write about it for like, it wasn't original. There was stuff white people like, which was like this funny, you know, send up of Caucasia, if you will. And then I was like, you know what Christians like? Ripping off popular secular ideas. <laughs> exactly, so right. the first one was stuff Christians like, number one, was ripping off popular secular <laughs> ideas. So I thought I'd make fun of the stuff we do for like a Christian week. Christian
0: subculture. I love it. Yeah. yeah
1: and then it kind of took a life of its own. And so it wasn't like, it was just what I knew. And it was at the time, like it started to get momentum in ways I hadn't expected. And I was like, oh man, like this is really fun. Like, and then part of it was I wanted, so I didn't get into it because I was like, I have to finally write Christian satire. Like I've always written it in my diary alone. And now I finally am able to do it. It was like, I had a bunch of ideas and that one kind of grew a little. So I was like, I'll do this. Let's try it. And I had fun with it. I love communicating with humor. That's enjoyable to me. But with that particular idea, I felt like I had done it. I mean, I wrote the site for like eight years or six years or something. And it was like, there's only so many worship leader jokes you can do where it's like, oh, my gosh. Like, oh, their jeans are crazy. I know, right? Like, tell us that a 50th time. I like, what they wear scarves. What? Scarves. That's crazy. And so, like, I just felt like it was time. I had done that. There were a bunch of other smarter, funnier people in the space and I was like that you know like let they can have a turn with the topic i've always been about life change and the potential of life change so that was curious to me so i did the book quitter about that journey okay like what do you do when you feel stuck at a job and you want to change that and so i shared that story and that's kind of what started and then i started to go oh wow it's really fun to talk to corporate audiences Oh, okay. Wow. That's interesting. And I started to go, okay, I'm going to do start, which is more of a corporate book. I'm going to do do over, like finish soundtracks where the goal of those books is I get to speak to teams because that's where people are. Like that's where, and I get to go to comedy central or Microsoft or whoever, and say, or a software company and say, Hey, here's some ideas. And companies like, I think sometimes people in the church don't understand this. Like companies want their people to win and be successful. Like a good company cares about their people. So when I say, I've got a book about overthinking that will really help you guys be more productive, higher retention rate, employees are happier. They're like, cool, well, come show us those ideas. Or like when I have have a book about finishing goals, awesome, we're doing a sales kickoff. It's been a challenging year. If you could help slingshot us, that would be great. And I go, I can. So that's kind of how it evolved. Do you see a connection
0: for you? I mean you're an ambitious guy, right?
1: You're a very driven guy. Is
0: there a connection for you between that ambition and pursuit of excellence and your faith or are those things largely separate for you?
1: I have some degree of hang up about success and faith. I don't think a lot of people do, but I think that's something that I struggle with is like success is sinful. You should do a podcast on that. Yeah, we talk a lot about that, yeah. Because I remember a Christian musician told me and he was in Nashville and he said, if you get a seventy-five thousand dollar suburban, people say, Good for you, that's a great family car. If you get a seventy-five thousand dollar BMW, they say, Jesus rode a donkey. <laughs> like he rode a donkey. So I'm right. just gonna so, say just And gonna so leave like, that leave that with you. Yeah, you interpret it how you will, but like <laughs> as if like there's a line where it's like, Oh, they got a big house, but the sin started with the screened in porch. Everybody knows Jesus. Jesus is fine with a certain size house. Right, right. right. You had a pool, he is furious. And so I think with my being ambitious, I've had to like really learn to be open handed with that and that God determines the size and the pace. Because Mm -hmm. I think I sometimes make it smaller out of, well, I don't, you know, I don't want to ruffle feathers or I don't want to be shamed online by Christians. Like we're not the nicest audience to each other. No, not at all. (laughs) That was one of the things I really learned being in the Christian space and corporate space. Like sometimes, not all the time, there's, there's amazing people of faith having amazing discussions. But sometimes it felt like, when I write a business idea, the business audience judges the idea. And when I write a Christian idea, the Christian audience judges the the shape of my soul. Like they go like, you're not a Christian, if you believe this versus like, oh, yeah, that idea works. Like, and that was, And I just look. That's not fun.
0: No, it's not the gospel. Listen, I'm writing devotional series on Arthur Guinness right now. So, oh yeah, I I hear you. Yeah, no, that's interesting. We talk a lot on the podcast about like it's not about success. It's about stewardship. It's just about God has given you, John, these talents as a communicator. It's the parable of the talents. Going back to a few minutes ago, right? And you're called to steward them well.
1: I want to steward those well and I want to not get lost in it. And so like, I want to not have my identity tied up into my work, which is challenging given the career we do. So I would say, you know, like there's a lot to that. I want to live fully out of who I'm meant to be. I want to run as fast as I've been been given the ability to run. So like, I want to do all that. And I don't want to, you know, I'm always like, how did these successful leaders wreck it? Like, where were the steps? Like, that's always a curiosity for me. I refuse to believe it has to be that way, but I think there's decisions along the way that corrupt it or change it. And so I'm just always curious about that.
0: Define Wreck-It and then can you offer some hypotheses about what you think these people do to Wreck-It? Well, Wreck-It wreck
1: it like lose their whole company, lose their whole ministry, get fired in a like ball of scandal. flame. Scandal, yeah. Scandal, like the 50th scandal, not like the first scandal, like the, oh yeah, like the people two years before like, yeah, this is not going to end well. This is a slow moving train, but it's still going to crash. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing I think. And I'm not like good at fame. Like fame for me, like I'm not good at it. I want to be influential. I want to serve people like crazy. I want people to win. Like I want people to publish their book and grow their company. But so for me, a hypothesis would just be like, I think one of my favorite stories is a friend of mine was leaving a big church to go pastor another big church. And he asked the head pastor, his old one, like, what should I do? How do I not just blow it up? And he was like, make a list of things that you think are weird and give it to a friend and say, if you see me do any of these things, tell me. And my friend was smart enough to know, you know what, dude, no one's going to do that because it's so hard. It's so hard to be like, hey, if I'm just blowing up my life, will you have an intervention that's super challenging and emotional and awkward? So what he did was he wrote a letter to himself and gave it to three friends and said, just hand me this letter. That's all you have to do and I'll know. So I love being deliberate that way. I'm going like, no, I'm I'm susceptible to that. Like I don't look at anyone who's failed and go, they did something I could never do. Nope, dude. Nope. I am capable of all of that stuff. So I think relationships matter. I've been telling this story. I have a friend named Ben and we go on walks. The older I get, the more I'm like, walks are dope. Like yeah, a walk me too. and Jeez. walks had a big 2020. Everybody walked in. Big, big, they big was, year. It was year so, for hot, walking. so hot. Yeah. So Ben and I go walking. This is like three weeks ago. And he's like, what's going on? I'm like, man, I missed this opportunity. And I felt really sad about it. And I felt really afraid that I'd never get another one. I felt like I'd blown my chance. I felt like I was the biggest idiot for missing the opportunity. And he was like, well, what would you have had more of if you had done that opportunity? And I was like, wow, that's a really good question. And he's like, what would you have more of than you do right now? I was like, okay. And then he said, the second question was, would you have gone deeper into your ego or deeper into your heart? And like, I knew the answer to that one instantly. And I was like, my ego. And he said, well, that makes me sad because I don't think you would have valued our walks and this friendship and I would have missed out on this time. And like, that's a gift. So I think a big part of it I'm like, I love Chip Dodd, the voice of the heart, his book about saying like, I don't get to receive that gift from other people unless I'm brave enough to admit I'm scared, I'm afraid, I'm lonely. And then other people can speak into that. But if I feel as a leader, influencer, whatever title that I got to have act like I have it all together, like get it, dude. It's it's so isolating. It's so game over.
0: Yeah, that's good. I think my favorite line in soundtracks, I'm going to read it verbatim. I got it right here quote, we spend 18 years teaching our kids that work sucks and then act surprised when they graduate from college and don't seem eager to get a job, end quote. So a big theme of this podcast is how our faith influences our work. I'm curious, like, what are you trying to teach your kids? Your kids are a little bit older than mine. Uh, what are you teaching your kids
1: right now about work? And how are you teaching them those things? I'm trying to give them tools. Like I'm trying to give them tools, not my expectations. I think people ask me that all the time. They're like, hey, well, not all the time, like five people have ever, but all the time sounds like it's <laughs> right, like when you're speaking, right, right. you go, the other day it can mean any time. Right, right. Speak. Four years ago. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So people have been asking me, how do I get my kids excited about goals or work or whatever? And I always say like, well, you're 45 and they're 15. So it took you 30 extra years to understand the value of goals. Don't expect a 15 year old for you to say this magic phrase or give them a book and it'll change their frontal lobe. Like give them some grace. So what I try to do is come beside my kids versus being in front of them, pulling them toward this thing. So that's the dance. Cause like you want, you know, my daughter, my fifteen year old recently had to get an eight thirty mile for her lacrosse team. So she was like, Dad, I want to train in January. Let's run some miles together. I was like, awesome. So we did Strava, we ran some miles, we didn't make it like super crazy. And she ended up getting a seven forty-eight. I was so proud of her. And we did it bit by bit. She ran by herself a lot. It wasn't like, hey, let's get up at 4 a.m. and drink egg yolks and you have to do it like, because that would have suffocated it. So I'm trying to like be beside them, but then also be honest about, yeah, this part of my job is difficult because every job has difficulties. This part of my job is amazing because there's a lot of amazing things that happen in the context of work. So I try to show them both sides of that. And I have a weird job. So like I try to walk them through what I'm doing. But you talk to them a lot about your job. Oh, yeah. And they think it's hilarious. Like, we got a Land Lakes. I tweet about queso so much that Land Lakes, the company, sent me 24 pounds of queso. <laughs> so, like, they think that's hilarious. That's like the funniest thing to them. And they're like, Dad, you got to get some free makeup from glossy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm right, like, right. But I'm not a makeup influencer. <laughs> like, I have to be really good at, like, I don't know, lip gloss and I'm terrible at lip gloss. People know that. So yeah, they just, I mean, they think my job's funny. I try to bring them to the moments where it's super fun for them.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And we
1: try to tie the good moments to the challenging moments. So when you go like, hey, remember when I I had to do this thing and it was like a crazy week, like we're now in Disney. Those two things are related. This is how I pay for stuff. This is how we, like, I would love them to graduate our house with like an appreciation of hard work. That's
0: really good. I love it. John, three questions. We wrap up every conversation with number one. And I know this you know varies depending on the person, but in general, which books other than your own do you gift most frequently or recommend most frequently to
1: others? Easy, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield.
0: The most popular answer on this podcast.
1: Yeah, that one. And then I just bought 10 copies of A Creative Technique for Producing Ideas by James Webb. It's from the 1940s. Nobody knows it. And it's probably like 30 pages long, costs like three bucks. And it's the best book on how to generate good ideas.
0: I'm going to buy it as soon as we get off the line. Who would you most like to hear on this podcast talking about how the Christian faith influences the work that they do in the world?
1: I don't know. Oh, Chris Pratt.
0: Great answer. That solid good answer. answer. We've I'm very we've good uh, at answers.
1: yeah, yeah. You're yeah. very good at answers. Pretty solid. We started with Yanni. I'm, I'm <laughs> moving on to Chris Pratt.
0: <laughs> and with Chris Pratt. I love it. The whole yeah, spectrum. Yeah, I'd love
1: to hear him talk about his faith, but also like Twitter when people are mean. Like, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, I think that'd be fascinating.
0: Yeah. Last question. One more piece of advice to leave this audience with: an audience of people doing a bunch of different things. Some of them are writers. Some of them are entrepreneurs, marketers, janitors, whatever. What they share is a desire to do great work for the glory of God and the good of others. What do you want to leave them with?
1: I think I'd say like, let it be light and easy. That's what we're promised. The burden and the yoke is light and easy. And so I had that on a post-it note. I'm looking at it right now. So before I wrote soundtracks, I wrote that on a post-it note and said, okay, I'm usually a jerk during the book writing process because I'm so stressed. This one's going to be light and easy. And I'm going to deliberately pray toward that, repeat that, work on that with my overthinking. So yeah, I would say like light and easy is a good goal.
0: John, I want to commend you um, just for the great work that you do, just for serving your clients well, serving your readers well through the Ministry of Excellence. Guys, the book is Soundtracks. I read every word of it, thoroughly enjoyed it. You can pick it up wherever books are sold. John, remind me of the name of the new podcast.
1: All It Takes is a Goal. All It Takes is a Goal. It's about, I mean, my big belief is that goals are the fastest path between where you are today and where you want to be tomorrow, and they feel amazing when you finish them. And so I think that it's really fun to finish goals, and I want that feeling for other people.
0: I love it. And you can find everything from John at Me. Of course, we'll have that link in the show notes. John, thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Jordan. I really appreciate reading the book. That was a lot of fun.
0: Seriously, if you haven't listened to Yanni live at the Acropolis. Go stream it now. I always love talking to John. That was a blast. Hey, if you're enjoying The Call to Mastery, take 10 seconds, open up Apple Podcasts, go find the show, rate it, five stars, four stars, whatever you think is fair. You don't even need to write a review, but if you do, I'll read it to my team to encourage them. we got a whole team working on this show. They would love to hear what you think about the content that we're producing, so go leave a review or a rating right now. Guys, thank you for tuning in to The Call to Mastery.